Welcome to Pints and Politics, the February 6th, 2020 edition. Pints and Politics is a bi-weekly, uh, well, weekly these days, a discussion program of all things political. Coming to you through the facilities of Trent Radio, CFFF in Peterborough, Ontario, 92.7 on your FM dial. My name is Bill Templeton. This is our fifth show of the uh, winter-spring season. We'll be on the air every Thursday at 7 until April 16th. At the end of this program, I'll give out all our podcast site and social media addresses. Now, joining me tonight in the studio is our politics panel, somewhat reduced uh, on all things political, not uh, reduced in number, not in quality, of course. We have with us uh, property manager and businesswoman Jenny Lancio, and we have also Curve Lake First Nation Councillor and Ontario NDP Indigenous, Indigenous Peoples uh, Committee Chair, Sean Conway. Welcome. Now, Sylvia Sutherland is traveling, and Laurel Hunter is away. Tim Etherington lost his voice. And Donald Fraser, I think, is uh, immersed somewhere out in the wilderness of Orange Corners and can't make it in tonight, but will be in next week for our hockey panel. Anyway, thank thank you for joining uh, joining me here in Studio A. All right. Now, as is our custom, we're going to talk uh, about politics, uh, municipal, provincial, federal. So to start with, uh, Sylvia Sutherland, who is a frequent panelist with us, reported in her column last week and Peterborough this week that there was a considerable amount of resistance from members of our city council to the idea of limiting the hours of operation of the Centennial Fountain in Little Lake. Uh, Councillor Kim Zippel proposed cutting back the fountain season of operation for five months to two months, just July and August, thereby saving $40,000 and 53% of the emissions generated by the fountain's operation. Councillor Dean Pappas proclaimed that he would not disrespect the fountain's major donor, General Electric, by supporting a, a motion to cut back the fountain's hours. Councillor uh, Leslie Pornell opined that the fountain is a Peterborough icon. It is a symbol of our city. It's part of our fabric and part of our history. There's more to it than just numbers. Some councillors have reported receiving threats over their support for Zippel's proposal. Over a fountain? Really? Um, thus I have been told. Sylvia concluded in her column with the following. You don't just declare a climate emergency just to walk away feeling all self-righteous about it. If you are not prepared to take this small step, just what are you prepared to do? Now, so my question for the panel tonight is, why is curtailing the operation of the fountain for budgetary reasons attracting so much anger? Jenny, now you are, you live close to the fountain. (laughs) It's like literally right in front of my house. So I have a, a personal attachment to it to begin with. I think one of the reasons why it's attracting so much ire from from people is that, like, to be perfectly honest, Peterborough right now doesn't have a tremendous amount of nice things going for it. And it's one of the things that is perceived, rightly or wrongly, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. being an iconic feature in the downtown. And I think that's, you know, it, it was donated by GE. The city was kind of built on on GE, I don't necessarily have a problem with taking a look at ways the city can reduce its carbon footprint, but to just randomly come out and say we're going to shut down the fountain, I think that's kind of what irritated people. Let's look mm-hmm. at all of the city holdings. Like, what can we do for everything? If you're going to look at what the city can do, let's look at everything the city owns. Fair you know, enough. And see where we can cut corners there. But I just, I think the, 
the fountain, I think people kind of felt like they were being personally attacked. Like it became a very personal issue for people. Yeah, I think I think if you look at the fountain, the fountain was designed by um, Frank Fisher, mm-hmm. uh, nice. Fisher Cast in East City, and that's right. Washburn Hank's father. Oh, well, <laughs> he he designed and came up with the idea of putting a fountain in Little Lake. Yeah, and I think another fact that we've got to remember is that thirty percent of all emissions, generally speaking, with municipal holdings, are going to come from carbon that's embedded in the buildings themselves, not necessarily the operation of anything. Right. I think if you look in the broader scale of the grid in Ontario, we've got pretty green electricity, and we've talked about that quite a bit. What with, with um, hydro, nuclear, and what wind and solar farms are remaining these days. But we've got a pretty green grid. I think that if the city wants to think about emissions, we need to start thinking about how are we retrofitting municipal Mm -hmm. holdings? How are we taking some of the old, not necessarily the old, because the old stuff is pretty good. Lath and plaster is okay. It's the, um, it's the pink insulation. It's the, yes. it's, it's bad roofs. It's like, let's think about steel roofs. Let's think about cellulose in- insulation. Things that are going to save costs for the city, but right. also re- reduce embodied carbon. And I think the first thing that people are going to want to do is to look at a recent report by Chris Magwood that came out. Mm-hmm. Chris Magwood's an instructor with the Endeavor Center here in Peterborough. Mm-hmm. And they do um they do training for people on how to how to do those retrofits mm-hmm. yourself. And it's a really great resource. But maybe the city should hear what he has to say. Mm-hmm. He did an entire paper looking at the instru- uh, construction and infrastructure industry and how that can be greened up to mm-hmm. get to net zero and zero carbon buildings, steel roofs, uh, wood paneling, cellulose insulation, yeah. and then throwing the solar panels on things rather than just shutting off a fountain for an extra hour a day and beyond that why don't they start charging people for idling their vehicles or switch the fleet well, to electric yes yes that point has come out and i've certainly heard the point uh, speaking nationally here that uh, if canada really wants to get serious about reducing uh, uh carbon footprint and uh, greenhouse gas emissions the thing to do is exactly what you're saying is to let's get serious about a national uh, building insulation program. Now, on Twitter, local writer Will uh, Pearson posted that more than a third of the city's 2.75, two and three quarter percent tax hike can be traced back to provincial budget cuts. So the provincial cut cuts. So the province cuts taxes and the city raises them. Will this fact come back to hurt the Ford Conservatives. It didn't hurt Mike Harris in 95. He was re-elected. And there was a massive downloading of of services from the province onto municipalities. There were massive tax hikes. And um, and it's simply, if the province wants to reduce the province's deficit, they're going to pass it on to the municipality. But the municipality can't hold a deficit. Right. Now, the reason that we have a government is to hold on to deficits and debts. Right. To benefit people, we do that. The federal government, let the old uh, the old mandate of the Bank of Canada was geared towards interest free interest free and low low interest uh, loans for capital and infrastructure. But that's not there anymore. That backstop where mm-hmm. we were able to loan money to ourselves to build things. So again, the federal government downloads the provincial government. The provincial government runs up a debt. They're going to cut their taxes or cut their services and say, oh, the municipality can deal with that, where 
everyone's just passing the buck and nothing's mm-hmm. getting done. So the net result for the taxpayer, it's a wash yeah. because mm-hmm. my, um, my city taxes will go up, my provincial taxes will go on, but at the end of the day... Pay it, it now matter. or pay it later, Yeah, basically. The road's okay. still got to get, get, get fixed. Yeah. Okay. And I don't know if it's going to hurt Doug Ford or not because people elected him knowing that this is exactly what was going to happen. It should come as no great surprise that people's property taxes are going up. Everybody likes all of the services and then all of a sudden it's a big problem when you're told you have to pay for them. Right. All right. Now, after hearing uh, from over 40 presenters last week concerning the proposed start of nuclear fuel pellet manufacturing in a residential neighborhood and... Jenny, you did uh, for your uh, full disclosure, full disclosure on my side, is I live six-tenths of a kilometer away from this plant. The, um, the manufacturing will happen in, uh, plant in uh, Building 21 on the old GE site on Monaghan Road, fairly close to downtown. Now, City Council has decided to ask for a report to be given on February 10th from our medical officer health on the dangers posed by uranium dust and radiation in the vicinity of BWXT's uh, plant. Council will write to federal officials to say citizens are concerned about how pelleting here could affect their health. Uh, now, the, feg- the federal regulator, the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, or CNSC, is coming to Peterborough for hearings on March 4th, 5th, and 6th. Now, the CNSC will hear presentations from over 50 interveners. So my question is, why has it taken this long for our municip- municipal leaders to show some leadership on this issue? What's going on? Well, I think it probably has a direct correlation to the fact that the bottom line is that GE provides employment in Peterborough. Used to provide. But there's still people working there. Like, there's whatever the name of the company is now, BX, whatever it is. Like, it's there are still people employed by the company. BWST, right. yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. So, like, I think they kind of walk a fine line between keeping jobs in Peterborough and keeping... And getting involved in this battle, I think. And I'm not sure that a city council has the expertise to even have an opinion about it. Like, do you you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not sure that there's anybody on city council that has an expertise in uranium pelleting that can have, that can say that they have without any shadow of a doubt an opinion about it. I think that's good Mm -hmm. that they're waiting for uh, Dr. Salvatera to do a report and hopefully that kind of enlightens the facts around the implications around uranium pelleting. I know the biggest concern from the the special interest group Carn is about uranium powder. It's about the powdering. If you if you think of uranium in its raw state, if it was you know say here on the table, it's not terribly worrisome. It's when it's powderized and you breathe it in, right? Mm-hmm. And it is it's soluble. It stays with the body, right. and that's very po- problematic and i think the argument that that is coming from karn is is the more that you have things being pulverized the more chances it is going to be breathable it's close to a school it's in the middle of a residential area but let's think of like the history of the corporation so right now they're they're brand new to canada i think they only they only came to canada a few years ago and they have one plant doing pelleting or something like pelleting in Toronto yeah. around the DuPont area. Yeah, Lionsdown DuPont. Yeah. And um, 
they no longer want to do that there because there are massive developments happening in that neighborhood. So they're going to move all of that and consolidate it in Peterborough. What better place than the industrial wasteland known as General Electric? <laughs> so I think that I think beyond it, if you if you think of the history of GE and 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 their sort of impact on Peterborough with cancer clusters and 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 the dissolution and letdown of workers there, I don't see a lot of good. But at the same time, I don't know what good a letter from city council is going to do if they if they're not if that's not explicitly going to be an intervention mm-hmm. at the CNSC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. If it's a letter, well, a letter isn't an intervention. The intervention process with that regulator—it's a controlled regulator, by the way. Like it's they're fairly close together. It's right. um, it's. You know they're not they're not totally separated. <laughs> um, yes, indeed. But if the unless the city wants if the city really wants to make a stand on this, and I don't even know if that's the right thing for it to be. Mm-hmm. Really, it should be your your federal representative. It should be Marion Monsef doing that. That's mm-hmm, a federal mm-hmm, regulator, mm-hmm. and you should have the federal representative intervening on your behalf. Right. I I feel like you know maybe no one's called Marion. Or maybe no one is, you know, maybe she's not interested in getting involved in it because she doesn't want to lose an election. <laughs> minority government, after yes, all, yes, indeed. Politics here, yeah. But um, really, I don't know how effective that would a letter from city council would be. I'm, I'm sure it would help to the cause, and I'm. But I really feel that it's the our federal representatives that should be involved. Okay, okay. Now, Dr. Salvatera, who uh, has made a statement in the press saying that along along the lines that uh, you're talking about, Tron, that uh, uranium is uh, relatively safe and that uh, beryllium, uh, is also used uh, in the process, is uh, in an open-air environment, is is also uh, not a threat to health. Now, I have one science course after high school. <laughs> I am not going to go to toe-to-toe on a science basis with uh, our medical officer of health. But I have trouble reconciling uh, the testimony, well, that's the testimony, the, the, story, the account of uh, Jim Dufresne, a former GE worker who who's, who's on the show a few weeks ago, of his collection of data on former GE nuclear workers, uh, their progress through the WSIB system uh, for getting claims for workplace injuries, and his stati- statistic that out of 175, he managed to contact uh, 64, contacted the family, 64 have died of cancers. That's more than one in three. So that concerns me. And then there's the mining, of course, up in uh, the Northwest, Ter- Northwest Territories. Uh, during World War II, the uranium that wound up in the Manhattan Project was mined up there by uh, First Nations people who were imported in for several hundred kilometers to do the work. And Many of them has come from cancers. Now, that's a mine with the dust you're describing, as opposed to a, a sealed, hopefully sealed, production fa- uh, facility. There's also so, the I, so, so, so it's the reconciliation the of those two. Is, are the numbers that Mr. Dufresne had, is it, are those numbers any different for anybody else that worked in manufacturing in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s? My grandfather worked for Stelco. He and everybody that he worked for are dead of lung cancer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was, uh, there was workplace pollutants. There wasn't the yeah. safety measures that were in place. Are we, 
at a spot where we can believe now that we know better, we do better. Yeah. I think that that, that's always going to be on the, on the horizon, but, but we have to look at what's happened in the past, specifically with the report that Jim is referencing. It was commissioned by Unifor Local 524 and it's an awesome history of Peterborough Mm -hmm. with the awful behavior of General Mm -hmm. Electric and and specifically the dealing with asbestos and dangerous chemicals and and the wiring sheds and and all the horrible things that happened there. I implore you to read the first the first twenty pages give you a pretty clear Mm -hmm. indication of the extent to which damage was done to the people that worked there. And you could tie that back into how we ended up with the WSIB as opposed to the workers' comp board and, you know, different problems there. I know yeah. that one of the largest problems with, with compensation and, and really righting those wrongs for people was they're not releasing and the Ministry of Labor and, and WSIB have never released the matrix for compensation. Right. So people don't know how they're supposed to yeah. go about a system to even say I was affected by mm-hmm. this. This right. happened to me. And, and there are a lot of families I'm sure that Jim contacted that they had no clue mm-hmm. or they, you yeah. know, there's. Even as something as simple as the filing process, I know that if my grandfather was to go, he wouldn't even know how to turn a computer on and get the form, much less go yeah. through the whole process yeah. of, yeah. you know, even an automated phone system or any yeah. of that stuff. It's not easy to sure. navigate the system. All right. Well, thank you for that. Now, before we leave uh, municipal matters, we have a good news story. And uh, lest pints and politics be accused of only throwing mud, um, <laughs> here here is a bouquet. Uh, Councillor Henry Clark took a firm stand, recent council meeting, on a proposal to widen Lansdowne to six lanes from its, from its current four lanes. Many felt that the resulting, or some felt that the resulting strode, a hybrid of street and road, would not be worth the money needed to build it and would not solve congestion. So, so bravo, bravo, Henry Clark. So my question for you, though, is why does this meme of Peterborough is so congested, why does this persist? Doesn't anyone go to Toronto anymore? <laughs> I think it's it's more congested than it ever was. I mean, the, <laughs> I, I can appreciate it. I think when we're talking about driving in Toronto versus driving in Peterborough, we're comparing apples to oranges. I mean, I don't know that there is a comparison between the two. Right. Um, What's interesting to me is that when Henry said, you know, this isn't going to fix the congestion in Peterborough, what I heard was dot, 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 but the parkway will, you know, like, I think, I think that some people are thinking if we do the six lanes of Lansdowne Street, it's going to fix all the congestion problems. Nobody's going to whine and moan about it anymore. And then we're never going to have to talk about the parkway again. And I think it still oh. all comes back to that, like, what is it, a 40, 50-year-old discussion of nonsense, and nothing ever gets done. I don't care. Make Lansdowne Street six lanes, put the parkway through, or stop talking about it. Just do something. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. it's getting old. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think, too, if you think about the way that people plan cities and you, the way that you plan roads, studies have shown for a long time that widening a road or adding more lanes does nothing. Yeah, it attracts more traffic. It attracts it more traffic. It, yeah. it spreads it out. It spreads it out. It's going to be the same. You're going to end up with, with the 401 at the 115 in Lansdowne. Mm-hmm. Like it, it doesn't do anything. Really what needs to happen is, is you need a reduction in speed in certain areas. 
Right. Or you need to start thinking, okay, this residential street, maybe it shouldn't be resident. Maybe this should be a throughway now. Mm-hmm. There are little things like that. Like right. I now that I live a bit to the north, mm-hmm. sometimes coming from the north, from say Riverview Park to get down to Lansdowne, takes me about the same time it does driving from the zoo to Curve Lake. Right. It's twenty five kilometers. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. it's yeah. But it's not that far. You know, there there are things to do. I think I think I don't know if it's the parkway, I don't know if it's a six lane, but it it definitely it definitely isn't gonna be an easy fix because we have to start thinking that in 10, 15 years, you're going to see a population explosion in Peterborough. The yes. university mm-hmm. and the college are still going strong. They're bringing in tons of students. There's no cap yes. on registration, by the way, in post-secondary institutions. Right. So they're just going to keep right. pulling people right. in. And the easier it is for people to get student loans, the more people are going to come here. These right. are great schools we have here. And mm-hmm. why shouldn't they come? But maybe we need to start thinking about – the role that the post-secondary education program or the post-secondary institutions have had on the crunch that we're feeling on housing, uh, we're feeling oh. on traffic, right. the way that we're dealing with all these things. Maybe there should be a cap on admissions for post-secondary institutions. Mm. There's my hot take for the day. Uh, okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. Now, Sean, while we're talking, what is going on? Uh, you raised an issue uh, a few weeks ago, uh, one or two panels ago, that uh, Curve Lake is part of a, a network of First Nations that are involved in a class action against the federal government over drinking water quality. How is that progressing? Is that going to the courts yet? So in October, November of, of last year, we filed a statement of claim against mm-hmm. the federal government. And what that does is it protects and removes the statute of limitations on evidence that we have that the federal government has been not providing clean water, which they're obliged to. Right. They're obliged to. It's their fiduciary responsibility are our agreements with the Crown. Right. Which under the Constitution Act, when we switch from British North America Act, switches right. over to us, right? Us and the uh, and the government of Canada. So right now, really, where we're at is we're at a, a place of community consultation. Mm-hmm. We're seeing what what sort of measures our community wants us to take. Right now, it is a localized class action dealing with Curve Lake First Nation and members of Curve Lake First Nation. We're mulling the idea of switching to a national class action. Mm -hmm. But right now, our statement of claim sits in the federal court, and we are anticipating movement on that within the next few months. Okay, and, and Curve Lake is taking a leadership position. Is that correct? Yes, this is our this is our evidence, our statement of claim against the federal government. We've had poor water water quality issues for a long time. Mm-hmm. There was never any wastewater or water piping done in Curve Lake when mm-hmm. the relocation happened, and so it's really a conglomeration of housing, septics, and wells very close together now. Mm. And it's a very small area, and the aquifer that the peninsula sits on is actually very small. You would think that we've got Pakorn and Shemong, that those are big bodies of water that feed into an underground aquifer, but it's not true. 
And, and as you mentioned, which I didn't know, those are artificial lakes. Yeah, that whole area is the product of flooding from the Trent Severn Waterway 100 years right. ago. Right. So when they put the canal through, all of the water that they were moving from Severn to Lake Ontario had to settle somewhere. So there was flooding along the entire Trent Severn. Right. And a large majority of it flooded Curve Lake. You may remember that there's a... Uh, there's a long-standing uh, issue with the federal government about the amount of land that was lost, not only for Curve Lake, but also farmers and agriculture in the area. Um, lots of farms were flooded for the construction of the Trent Severn. Right. How right, would right. you go about getting clean water at Curve Lake? So right now we're looking at a um, pulling water out of Buckhorn Lake with a water treatment facility and then running a main pipe through the center of the community with a water tower and that'll that should hopefully sort everything out but that's that's the simplest solution we have i know that people have talked about well what about individual uv filters or this sort of thing yeah, yeah. it's it halts our ability to to develop mm-hmm. right. and to build more housing Right. So we need to open the road up and put pipes down. All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, and we will come back to uh, other issues maybe that uh, you can shed some light on in terms of First First Nations federal relations when we get to the federal part of the menu here. Provincial. Now, in the battle of public opinion, which side is winning the current labor dispute between the Ontario government and the Ontario teachers? Uh, we had a strike day today. There's one tomorrow for some schools. What will be the eventual outcome? Who will win and who will lose? I don't know if anybody ever wins in a strike. I, give, <laughs> I mean, I give the yeah. teachers full props. If they're not at work, they're not getting paid. And that's the bottom line. And I don't yeah. know too many of us that can that can not be getting a steady yep. paycheck all the time. Yep. Um, I don't know if I suspect it's already reached the threshold where it doesn't really matter what they get in a settlement. It's never going to make up for the money that they've lost by being right. out on strike. Well, it's um, 60 million a day, isn't it? Yeah, I yeah, think, yeah. The, the, the province saves. Province is saving, exactly. Yep. You know, it's the middle of the winter, it's cold, like, Nobody wants to walk a picket line. Yes. So I give them my utmost respect for being out there. I don't think that the classroom was what it was like when I was in the classroom when I was a kid. And, um, you know, my daughter's where she is because of the educators that she had. And it's not an easy job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, at this point we see public, opi- uh, public opinion polls are very much in favor of uh, teachers right now. And, and it's for the first time in a very long time that you see almost all – levels of public education in Ontario going on strike. How it's going to end, though, Bill, is either there's going to be a deal or there's going to be not a deal. Mm -hmm. The sticking points right now are defending and maintaining full-day kindergarten. Right. It's about... Um, re- reversing cuts to special education in public schools. Right. It's about um, class limiting size. class size. Yeah. And it's also about um, about maintaining the... Uh, the cost of living? No, the, no, no. That, that's barely a part of negotiations. Right, okay. uh, it's, uh, it has to do with the online learning. Right. And we're limiting right. that because... The amount that people are expected to learn on their own. For, yes. for high school courses online on your own with a system that's never been tried, Yes, who's going to benefit from that? Ridiculous. Well, you know, th- this is this is an interesting uh, theme, and I, I think it's telling because uh, I do some contract work out at Fleming, and uh, there I am in the classroom with uh, you know, predominantly 19 to 22, 23-year-olds, a few older students, 
And the assumption is that well, they've grown up in the digital age. You know, this stuff is like uh, walking a straight line and chewing gum for them. Not it's so. Not so. Yeah. A- and online learning is not a-, a slam dunk. There are a lot of young people who struggle with the level of computer use that uh, out at Fleming we, we call upon students to be able to do. Well, and what door does it open to? If you want to normalize online learning in public education, then you're going to need to be able to normalize that across the board. So are we thinking mm. about digital kindergarten? Are we thinking about <laughs> digital grade one? Well, well yeah, 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 you, yeah, you open yeah. the door and there's always going to be a corporation. I know there are corporations that specialize in, in online education and of course they would want that to be mandated that public education four levels of public education in Ontario are now mandated to have online learning but they're going to say oh you know people aren't really getting this maybe we should do it in every grade mm-hmm. right and then they're going to be used to it well right. then now you've got every teacher in Ontario's where are their jobs? Where right. is that job security? It's about defending what works. Mm-hmm. Right. We know that there, of course, people are going to fall through the cracks and people are going to fall through the cracks in any system. Right. But the public education system in Ontario is amazing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It Absolutely. really is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and we've got to think about that. And, and going back into labor action, Right now, the only way that the – there are two ways that the Ontario government can end a strike. It's going to be, one, coming to a fair deal right. for students, or number two – the Legislation. Going to, but the argument for back-to-work legislation, right-to-work, mm. back-to-work legislation is a constitutional matter because you have the constitutional right to collective bargaining. Right. However, they can override that by saying that the strike action is is – is more harmful than mm-hmm. than anything. So this is the genius part of the labor movement, putting on rotating strikes. Because right. what's a day? Mm-hmm. Right. As opposed to going on a full strike for a couple of weeks. Right. Well, if you were to go on strike for a couple of weeks, the government can be recalled and you could have back-to-work legislation within two to three days. Yes. So I projecting that forward, are we saying or are, are you suggesting, Sean, that rotating strikes could go on for a while? Yeah. As in... A few more weeks. And I, I think the the teachers are in. Like they are, they're in for the long haul. The ones that I, yeah, have, yeah. Yeah, the oh, ones no. that I have talked to. Yeah. Like I don't know that they're ready to concede. Yep. And I, I think you see it on on both sides. Uh, the Ontario NDP just launched a campaign yesterday, calling on Doug Ford to fire Stephen Lecce, which has been yes. very yes. successful. Yeah. And looking at the metrics of that, that's a really successful campaign. But really, they have a good point that the relationship is totally soured. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. when two people go into negotiations, I'm sure that between the provincial government and the teachers' unions, it started off in good faith. Yes, they're mm-hmm. going to be positions mm-hmm. that the, the provincial government wanted to make. You're right. That's not going to fly. So you've got two sides that are digging in, mm-hmm. but the advantage is always going to be for the teachers and the labor movement because the tactic behind rotating strikes is so smart. Yeah. Those rotating strikes can go on. Right. They were also already on uh, work to rule, mm-hmm. which I think is an even more effective campaign because it puts the onus on the boards and the senior management of schools to actually do the work that teachers aren't supposed <laughs> aren't to be doing. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and you, uh, you, 
our discussion about online learning out of the other side of my mouth i have to observe uh we, we had a program here on on pints and politics a few weeks ago on the international student experience and one of the things that came out of my interview three uh, uh international students at fleming was that Many of them come to Fleming because of the high level of computerization of education that they cannot get in India, in the Philippines, in China. Uh, so it's a knife that cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. You know that, that I'm not sure if in our public school system, if the online learning, like I don't doubt that I, I guess maybe you could teach the academic portion of schooling online. Sure. But all of the social aspect that comes with being in a public school, the collaborative work, Mm -hmm. the getting along with your peers, the respect of the teacher, the working in a classroom, you lose all of that. And out in the real world, in a real job, you're not just putting on your headphones and doing your thing for the most part. You Mm -hmm, have to be mm -hmm. able to get along and share and do all of those soft skills that I think are, is really what children learn the most of in the school system. Well, and you look at, at the way that employers are going to look at an individual. They're going to look at somebody who is who is personable, right. who mm-hmm. is engaged, who is yeah. excited mm-hmm. about this. You don't learn that from online courses. I've done some online courses, and you remove the emotion from it. Yeah, it's it's, it's yeah. all out, and and you're you're there, and you're completing modules and units, and that's, that's it. it. Get your computerized mark, and that's the sum total. Right. All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I am just wondering, what has happened to the rebranding process we saw little glimmers of uh, for the Ford government? Coming into the new year, there seemed to be a, a kinder, gentler Doug Ford on offer. How's that going? I haven't seen anything from him in a long time. I don't remember the last thing I saw him. Maybe it just wasn't that impactful, but or I've stopped listening. But I haven't. I don't remember. Uh, well, well, that's why I asked. I've seen or heard from him. I mean, I can't say he's been super irritating, but he also hasn't really done anything. I think right now, um, uh, with 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 labor actions in Ontario right now, you're seeing Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education, kind of being the face of the government right now. He's <laughs> taking it on the chin. Yeah. But what that does. Well, it's not Doug Ford. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. Well, Everyone's talking that's about true. Stephen Lecce. True. No, Everyone's true. talking about the progressive conservatives. They're not talking about Doug Ford. Yeah. Yeah. Or he'll let Stephen Lecce get through the strike and kind of, you know, throw him under the bus and fire him when it's all done and over with, and he'll be disposable. And then isn't Doug Ford fantastic? Because I fired that joker. And we got a deal. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's, oh. it's a pretty classic bait and switch. <laughs> bait and switch. And uh, it's yeah. it's smart politics by by Doug, mm-hmm. and um, and it's I it, I don't know I don't know what he's going to be doing because everything from both sides, so that from the opposition and from uh, Ford, it's been so focused on on the education file right now. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know what's going to come out. And and I think beyond that too, we we've got a, a Liberal Party of Ontario leadership race going on. I think right. the, the Liberal Party could be anything it wanted to be right now. Right. And and I'll acknowledge they're, they're seeing a bump in the polls right now for that. Right. That's, okay. Uh, I think it's tomorrow they decide. Ah. Okay. Well, I have not been keeping up with that race. Not but- a lot of people have been. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But one race that I have been paying some attention to is uh, 
well, on the federal scene. What do we make of the conservative leadership campaign so far? Why have most of the top candidates decided not to run? Did anyone else hear the almost audible sigh of relief from Liberal HQ when Rona Ambrose announced she would not be running? Is this now Peter McKay's job to lose? I think absolutely. But I think on the ground, um, Peter McKay has already broke uh, 500,000 uh, in donations. I didn't know that. Uh, uh, just a mm. couple of days ago, filing okay. his paper, he's already far exceeded the amount that he needs to raise. So that's on top of the $300,000 entrance fee. Right. He's already raised $500,000. He's a million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. He's already got over 3,000 signatures from across the country. Right. And I think he's... He's got that leadership in the bag. Really? So there's no second and third horse in this race? Like Aaron O'Toole is not? Aaron O'Toole was, was, uh, was barely a blip in the, in the last. Right. right. You know, Do you think he can win the election, an election, though? Yes. Is that because he's better than Trudeau or people are just sick of Trudeau? I think it's a little bit of both. If we look at Peter McKay, uh, he has he's able to deliver seats in Atlantic Canada, mm. and that's always been the, the Liberal swept struggle. Yeah, yeah. swept right. Atlantic Canada yeah. in 2015 yeah. and 2019. Less one seat in St. John's to Jack Harris, but Peter McKay can deliver Central Nova, and he can deliver some of those. They're strong. They're strong. Just like chip away at the. Yeah, he can chip away at it. If they picked up five or six more seats in the 905, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure Peter McKay could do, maintain the West. The West isn't going to leave the Conservative Party. Right. It's not going to. It's about picking up in Atlantic Canada and in Ontario, and Peter McKay is the person that can do that. All right. That's my that's my grim prediction. Yeah, yeah grim I, prediction. I also think that you know, if we think historically, a government going into a third mandate. So let's let's think the next federal election, whether it be in you know two months or two years. Yeah. A government that has had a majority government, had a minority government, has never lost that election, that third election in the history of Canada. Oh, really? Yes. They've always often gotten majority governments after that. The last one being, I believe it was Paul Paul Martin. Paul Martin. So it goes majority, minority, back to majority. Yep. Pierre Elliott Trudeau in the 70s. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bingo. (gasps) Yeah, it's it's an interesting time, I think. All right. Now, construction of the TMX is now underway, both in Alberta and in B.C., and the uh, the federal appeal court ruled unanimously that the federal government had fulfilled its duty to consult meaningfully with a handful of First Nations opposed to the project, clearing a major hurdle in the drawn-out battle to build a second line to carry bitumen from the, uh, the tar sands to uh, Burnaby and the B.C. coast. Now, the federal and Alberta governments immediately claimed victory, uh, putting Prime Minister Trudeau and Premier Jason Kenney on the same side for once. I just quoted from CBC's <laughs> from the CBC uh, on February fifth. Meanwhile, Chief Reuben George uh, of the Solon Watooth said yesterday that reconciliation stopped today. So again, who's winning? Who's losing on this issue? And will this pipeline be built? Well, nobody's winning, right? And what about the reconciliation? Well, I think question. That's such a such a can of worms if you want to think about what a new relationship between First Nations and the Crown is. The original relationship was never there, so I don't know what's there to reconcile. 
Right. So I've always been against that. It's about the establishment of respect between two nations. Right. And and how do you do that in a society that will regularly override the rights of sovereign people? As we're seeing in BC now. As we're seeing in BC, I think the federal government, the RCMP, and even the BC government under John Horgan have a lot of explaining to do. I don't think that in 2020 you need to have armed people and helicopters and helicopters going in and dragging out (laughs) dozens and dozens of people who are living on their land saying, hey, don't put a pipeline through here because you didn't want it to go through downtown Vancouver. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And was the RCMP also blocking anything coming in and out of? Yeah, the on the land, highway. On the, yeah. And they've, they actually start at five o'clock this morning going in armed and removing. Yes. Uh, anybody and everything around. So it, if you think of it in the ways the Wet'suwet'en land is sovereign and unceded to Canada, it is technically an international incident with regard to how Canada mm. views foreign affairs within the United Nations. It's an armed invasion. Right. Where are they taking these people? Oh, I don't know. Who knows? Probably just sitting in buses on the side of the highway. Yeah. Now, a senior corporate official with the joint venture uh, firm behind the uh, LNG uh, terminal project uh, that would eventually ship natural gas from the coastal gasoline pipeline says First Nations people who support the project are being silenced by by bullying and intimidation. Now, I know nothing about the the First Nations politics out there, but that smacks to me of divide and conquer. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that that you that any corporation has the right to say that one thing is one way or the other on external affairs, like the yeah. the relationship between the hereditary and democratically elected peoples out there is not the business of the federal government, and it's not the business of of Coastal GasLink. It should be up to those people to find out, well, what the hell is going on here? You know, obviously, sure. there's been a payout somewhere. Yeah. But why do the – why do why do no parties what, – what's with the secrecy about this? Yeah. Let's think about what, what the right thing to do is. Canada can't declare a climate emergency and then start building pipelines like never before. In, <laughs> in five years of this government, yeah. the – and only since starting to focus solely on the environment yeah. have we seen the greatest expansion to the tar sands and in, yes. into a fossil fuel industry, right. which we know internationally is dying. Right. And, and there's also the market conditions that now I, I am not a student of the oil industry, but when I listen to Jason Kenney make his pronouncements, I, I sometimes feel like yelling at my radio or yelling at the computer. Justin Trudeau didn't invent fracking in the U.S. I mean, the the, U, the Americans are now net oil exporter. That's not the fault of the government of Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and furthermore, the the price I read for the new tech mine that's being considered uh, the largest tar um, tar sand mine in, in Alberta proposal is on the table needs an oil price of seventy five dollars. Well, oil is hovering in the low fifties, so. <laughs> It's all well and good to play play politics and sh- take shots at people, but uh, if the market doesn't support the price of oil required to make those projects profitable, 
Well, back in the 70s. Let's go back to the 70s. <laughs> All right, back Bill. in the 70s. PetroCanada. Remember it well. Yes. In 1972, yes. when it was founded, was a regulator in a market right. for Canada's oil and gas industry. Right. It was sold off in the 80s right. by Brian Mulroney. Right. But that was a way – PetroCanada was a way to stabilize and regulate the market. Right. They knew about climate change back then. They were actively right. working to mitigate and to right. start investing in different things. And – they sold it off. It was right. the same thing like every time we have these great public enterprise, these public opportunities and options within industry, specifically within resource extraction, it really should be owned by the people. Right. I, I think that everything around it, that's that's where private industry comes. This is me as a social democrat believing that you know public enterprise and, and private business can work together. And it absolutely can. Well, I mean, and you're not without... Uh, you know, authority in your corner. Linda McQuaig in her recent book that uh, the Spartan uh, Prey of Capitalism. Yeah, that, that uh, the public the public ventures have actually been quite successful. And this this meme out there that private can do it better is in fact not supported by the research in her book. No. Linda McQuaig, of course, has an agenda, but but we've we've looked at that. We've looked at that over the years, and and we see with public-private partnerships, for example, which right. are all the all the rage now. And sometimes, for a municipality to partner with private business to get something done is the only way that you can get it done, right? Mm-hmm. Because they have no access to funds. If right. you're the city of Peterborough and you need to put up two thousand units right. of housing, you're not going to get that money anywhere. Yep. The federal government's going to give you. Oh, five million dollars. Ask you to match ten yeah. percent, and then the province might kick down this. You need somebody with sixty million dollars. Right. Well, sure. Call up, uh, call up whoever, right. and then try to make it happen because there's a need that exists mm-hmm. there. That goes down into the nature of the economy in Canada is the fact that we have no publicly consolidated infrastructure bank. Trudeau got elected on it in 2015 to put an infrastructure bank together, and it was going to save all this money right. on interest that municipalities are paying. That's not the case. They didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but they're going to say that it's there. But, but public enterprise works really well. P3s, we know when you bring private capital into public projects, that project is going to cost about 10 to 25 percent more right. than if one funding source did it. Yes. Yes. And uh, a moment of uh, moment silence for the 407. <laughs> Well, I think it works really well in things like, for instance, like a partnership like that. We want to build a new arena here in Peterborough. Absolutely. That's where something like that works really well. You know, mm-hmm. PepsiCo slaps their name on it or BWXT slaps their name on it or whomever yep. and they throw the money in and that's when it works yep. really well. Right. Yeah, right. there are op- there are opportunities for 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 things to happen. And there's a place for for all of it. It's about finding that balance. Mm-hmm. And um, resource extraction shouldn't should never have been privatized in Canada. It always was. Where it, yep. The entire the entire thing was based on pulling things out and taking them other places. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's my Canadian. <laughs> yeah, yes, 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 yes. Uh, no, no, no. That's uh, that's. Uh, but that's it, it. it it is definitely troubling right now. What's happening in British Columbia? And you know, all you can say is 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 good for. Good for the Wet'suwet'en who are who are there fighting off the RCMP and wish that the RCMP and the governments that are controlling them tell them to stand down and get out of there. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. What, to, to what end, though, Sean? Like, where do you see this 
this going? Like we're kind of walking a fine line here. Well, right now, um, I don't think that I don't think much is going to stop the RCMP at this point. Mm-hmm. They've already detained everyone there. Well, and they're armed, right? Like yeah. what? How, yeah. What do you do? Yeah. We could get into gun control a little later. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we can indeed. Will Pearson, actually just this morning, uh, tweeted out that stat about um, fully a third of city uh, taxes are driven by the Ontario debt. We've talked about that. But, you know, in response, it made me think of the whole affordable housing conundrum, and now we're back down a municipal level, that... Why can't we fix this? You know, why, like, is, is, why can't we bring in some sort of basic income? Because, I mean, the whole housing thing, there's, uh, there's, I mean, there's so many reasons why we don't have housing, but everybody, and you, everybody, you work in housing. Yeah, yeah. I do. And everybody thinks the solution to housing is just to build more housing and that's going to fix the problems. Building it is like 10% of the solution to the problem. The other 90% of that is who's going to manage it? Who's going to run it? Who's going to lease it? Who's going to clean it? Who's going to collect the rents? Like the property management aspect of it is like a 50-year-long commitment while you're paying for your development. It's one thing to say, oh, we're going to, you know, Miriam Monsef says she's going to build, what was it, 2,000 units. First of all, where? And Who's looking after that? Like, we right. can't even look, Peter, city of Peterborough can't even look after the housing that they have now adequately. How are they going to look after 2,000 more of them? It's it, right. like, I don't think people have any concept of the administration that goes with managing large housing complexes. Now, now Jenny, are you also talking about the wraparound services? Now, we, we did a program last summer on the opioid crisis and how that, um, Housing for that population, once they dry out and get back on the road to recovery, needs wraparound, like yeah. people to teach wrap- residents how no. to use. The wraparound services are like even above. I'm talking oh, about okay. infrastructure. I'm talking about does anybody know how much it costs for a snow removal contract in a year, for a grass cutting contract in a year, right. to pay a custodian to Waste come in? Disposal. Waste disposal. Pest management. Did it, and, 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 and that comes with high density living. Right. Every right. time somebody moves out, you repaint the apartment, you replace the appliances, you fix everything. You fix everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, nothing. It doesn't come for free. It's, right. It all costs money. The right. upkeep has, and, and to make sure that it's a successful project, mm-hmm. the upkeep has, it has to, to be, be there. Yes. Well, you can't then you have just a dump. build it. Yeah. No. There was a good model, I think, that was done with the Stornoway Place apartments down oh. down in Goodfellow, mm-hmm. and that was actually, I think. Then Sylvia is going to skewer me if I get this wrong. Because I don't <laughs> um, that the city got a grant from the owner of the Stornoway Place Apartments to put a number of affordable and geared to income units in there. Sure. And, and it was like a 20-year agreement. And it cost nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, from my very limited reading in the field, does not um – do not the Finns. Uh, there's a solution in Finland. They figured out housing first, and somehow they've managed to square the circle, and it's working. People, but if people, we, if people in Canada complain about a two point seven percent tax exactly. increase, you are never, no. you're never going to get to that Scandinavian the, model. The money came right. from somewhere. Either they yeah. cut something, or people are paying more. One or the right. other. And if you know the average citizen in Scandinavian countries are paying over fifty percent income tax. Right. 
there, mm-hmm. there are issues there as well. Yes, yes. I'm not saying that, that the services don't, you know, the collective buying power of the individual within a collective is always going to be higher. However, yeah. you're going to lose that, like, what, what does it mean if when you're making $50,000 a year, what does it mean to pay 50% income tax? What kind of life do you have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. What yes, services yes. are you going to yeah. get that make that yeah. worthwhile? worthwhile. What's, what's that sure. balancing act? So sure. basically, sure. your twenty five thousand that's left is your disposable income, and everything else is provided to you, but really not. You're paying it, yep. right, right, right. But it's it's about it's about finding that balance, mm-hmm. right. And I don't know that the Western countries are ready for that level of mm. integration with each other. Mm-hmm. Because you got to be pretty good neighbors to understand yeah. that everyone's taking a big cut, so that so that we can all have the an equal lifestyle. Well, so that everything's equitable. Brexit would tell us no. Exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, current relations with our neighbors to the south would tell us no. You know, mm-hmm. look how long the the uh, child of NAFTA took to negotiate. That uh, still that's, not ratified. Still not ratified. Mm-hmm. So looking ahead, we're in the depths of late winter here. Uh, Spring will come. What do you see happening uh, on the federal scene, provincially, that we should be keeping our eyes open for? New Green Party leader? Who do you think think that's going to be? I have no clue. So uh, Alex Terrell, who was the leader of the Green Party in Quebec, uh, basically stepped down as the Green Party increased their... uh, the funding threshold that you need to run, ah, which has gotten a lot of blowback in the grassroots of the party. Right. I think they upped it to thirty or fifty thousand dollars to be able to run. Where big, the last time I think it was three thousand dollars. Big bucks. Yeah. Big bucks for a small party. Yeah, yeah. And and we've got the conservative race coming up. We've got some interesting pieces of legislation coming. I'll commend Rana Ambrose for reviving her bill. Yes. Yes. Giving, full points. Um, yeah. Sexual assault sensitivity training Even for judges. judges. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's well, well needed and, and and very good, good for her in bringing that back through the Liberals. As we remember in the last session where she was interim leader of the mm-hmm. Conservative Party, uh, and quite admired, if memory serves. Ron was a was a good parliamentarian. Yeah, you know, I think of the Conservatives. People that I admired were always going to be Ronna Ambrose and Lisa Raitt. They were great right. people. Right. Well, on that note, well, thank you so much, uh, Jenny and uh, Sean, for for coming down. This has been our fifth program of 2020 here on Trent Radio. In this radio show, Pints and Politics, in addition to the radio show, Pints and Politics is streamed live from the Trent Radio website. We also have a podcast at pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca. And the podcast of tonight's show, edition number 79, will be uploaded by Saturday. Um, We post on Twitter at Bill Temp and on our Facebook page, Pints and Politics Podcast. So uh, please join us here at 92.7 FM, CFFF in Peterborough on your dial when we return next week with our hockey panel. This is pure indulgence. (laughs) Sean will not be listening. (laughs) And if you miss us here on the radio, you can always download the show as a podcast the next day at uh, pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca. Any feedback, please comment on the podcast website I just mentioned or send me a note at bill.templeman at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Until Thursday, February 13th, when our hockey panel returns to tell many lies and make its predictions, this is Bill Templeman. (laughs) 